Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Near a low foothill, at heaven's dorsal, where the trails descending to the plain and ending... Here three shepherds keep their three flocks of sheep. One Moldovan, one Transylvanian, and one Wallachian. Traditional Romanian poem Miorita, first transcribed by Vasily Alexandri. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello and welcome. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Today's episode is Episode 10, Walking Tour Part 5. Balkan infants. It has been a while. Those who follow the Facebook page know that a perfect storm of computer problems and baby prep conspired to leave me unable to update for the last few weeks despite a completed script. I'm actually recording today from my living room on a machine that was intended just as a living room box for watching movies. So sorry about the sound quality and unevenness, but we'll work with what we have for now. In the last two episodes, we've looked at the history of Eastern Europe from prehistory up to 1300, with a particular emphasis on the birth and growth of the Rus and the Eastern trade networks that stretched across the continent from the military hotbed around the Baltic to the valuable trading ports on the Black and Caspian Seas. In today's episode, we'll cross the Danube Delta and discuss the history and geography of the Balkan Peninsula, an area I find particularly fascinating. Though many may know of the Balkans only in terms of its tragic recent history, that recent history came about from a fascinating, if somewhat still tragic, medieval history. When looking at an area like this, it's important to not let modern developments color the way we're looking at the history. They don't know that someday there's going to be a horrible genocide in their region. Still, ethnic tensions are an undeniable part of the history of this region, and it's interesting to look at how a situation that's so outside of our normal experience developed in the first place. The quote that I've picked for today's episode, though transcribed at a much, much later date, hopefully does something to describe the shared culture of the region, with its closeness and proto-magical realism and mutual paranoia. I suppose I should explain that the Transylvanians, the Moldovans, and the Wallachians, the ethno-geographic regions that make up the Romanian state today. The rest of the poem deals with the way the very innocent Moldovan shepherd deals with the revelation from his talking sheep that the other two shepherds are plotting to kill him. Needless to say, 
there remains a fair amount of animosity between the Moldovans and the Wallachians and Transylvanians. I, however, broke the action just before that revelation was made, hopefully doing something to express where we are in the history of the Balkans. I wouldn't say it's a golden age, but people haven't started killing each other yet. Unlike many regions we've covered, there are a number of really great resources out there for those interested in learning more about the Balkans. Between Robin Pearson's wonderful History of Byzantium and the increasingly engrossing History of Bulgaria by Eric Halsey and Martin Kristov, there is already a fair amount of information out there in the Potiverse for those so inclined. For those who want more information than the Potiverse is currently providing, we actually live in a quite exciting time for research on the Balkans and their history. For many, many years, the only non-academic source on the subject was Rebecca West's immense, impenetrable, and appallingly pro-Serbian The Black Lamb and the Grey Falcon. After the fall of communism, many historians still avoided the topic, but journalist Robert Kaplan's Balkan Ghosts began to update and outline the region's history in a more enlightening way. Misha Glenny's The Balkans, Nationalism, War, and the Great Powers, 1804-1999, came out in 2000, and came out in paperback about ten years later, when I was working at Barnes & Nobles. I think my greedy reading of the book, on breaks and whenever I could hide from my boss, unnerved my co-workers, but it's something of a classic on the topic, and I think it holds up well to scrutiny, despite a slight pro-Croatian bias. This list is hardly exhaustive, and now that many academic articles are available online, there's a huge scope for the layperson to become very well versed in Balkan history. Given the plethora of information available, in the Potiverse and elsewhere, today I'm going to be trying to focus more on the geography and the later history of the region, rather than dwelling on the detailed ancient history of the region. Though it should be said that I have a number of episodes planned on things like the spread of Christianity among the pagans, and the interactions between the Greek and Latin churches, where the Balkans will be at center stage, and which will bring us back to the early medieval history of the region. So fear not, Balkophiles, there is much goodness headed your way. Before I end my footnote, I should briefly mention that if you want to know more about the books I have just mentioned, my sources for this or other episodes, or if you just want to get in contact with me, I encourage you to stop by the website, Wittenberg to Westphalia Podcast.weebly.com. I have book reviews, a growing amount of added visual material for each episode, and links to the Facebook page and my email address. Speaking of Facebook, that's a great way to stay on top of updates until I get on iTunes, so give the page a like. End podcast footnote. As usual, let's start by defining where the Balkan Peninsula is. Being a peninsula, the Balkan Peninsula is surrounded on three of its four sides by water the Adriatic Sea to the west, the Mediterranean Sea to the south, and the Black Sea to the east. The Aegean Sea, the Bosphorus Strait, the Sea of Marmara, and the Dardanelles Strait connect the Mediterranean Sea with the Black Sea. These latter waterways do present something of a boundaries issue for those familiar with the history of this region. Culturally and economically speaking, these waterways have often been less of a cultural and economic barrier to the inhabitants than a superhighway, with Greek culture in particular spanning the waters from the dawn of recorded history basically until 1921, when the peace treaty that ended Greece's war with Turkey resulted in a semi-genocidal exchange of population by the two nationalist nation-states. For our purposes, I'm going to lump the Aegean Islands into the Balkan region, as it will make discussion of trade much more meaningful. The northern, landlocked boundary of the Balkans is always much more difficult and contentious. As I mentioned in the episode, what is a Europe? Nations tend to not like being outside the European mainstream of Central or Western Europe. And since the genocide-laden breakup of Yugoslavia in the early 90s, people really, really have wanted to be outside of the Balkans, if they possibly could be. 
As a result, a traditional boundary has developed over the years that I consider rather inappropriate for my purposes. Though the Danube and Sava rivers have been widely accepted as a northern boundary for the last century or so, and are based ultimately on the Roman use of the Danube as a border, which date back to the time of the Caesars, I find this boundary startlingly unsatisfying. Despite its long preponderance, the big cultural and political events that have so characterized Balkan history washed over the Danube frontier as if it weren't there. In fact, as we will see shortly, in the Balkans it's the mountains that are the barriers and the rivers that tie things together. So basing, basing the northern border on one of the biggest, most useful rivers in Europe makes no sense at all to me. My border had to be further north. So let's go back two episodes to my discussion of the boundaries of Eastern Europe. In that episode, I drew a line from the Black Sea up the middle of the Danube River Delta to the Carpathian Mountains, and then around the arc of those mountains to the source of the Vistula. Well, today, let's keep that arc going until it meets up with the Danube at the city of Bratislava. We should then follow the Danube north for a very short way, passing just north of the city of Vienna, where we will meet the foothills of the Austrian Alps. There we will turn west and follow the ridge of those hills until we are even with the city of Trieste, at which point we just turn due south and meet up with the Adriatic in that city. My preferred line links together the peaks of the Carpathian and Alpine ranges, and incorporates the city of Vienna into the Balkans. If I have any Hungarian, Romanian, Austrian, or Slovak listeners, they can be forgiven for being rather uncomfortable with their inclusion in the Balkans, though of course I mean no offense. Instead, I wish to highlight the role that Vienna has played in Balkan and European history. Though culturally a very German city, uh, it is politically on the periphery of the German world, and key events impacting Vienna often happen off-screen in histories of Germany, in a way that events in Poland often do not. To understand why this is the case, we're going to need to start looking at the internal geography of the Balkans. When most people think of the Balkans, they think of mountains. If most people know anything about the Balkans, it's that it's very mountainous terrain. Unlike many of the other things you hear about the Balkans, this is in fact true. There are many mountains in the Balkans. Two of the mountain chains we've met already, the Carpathians and the Alps. These ranges, in fact all the ranges we will be discussing today, are part of the Alpine belt that stretches from the furthest tip of the Iberian Peninsula to the Himalayas and down into Indonesia as a result of the northward movement of the African, Arabian, and Indian plates. This means, just like the Pyrenees and the Massif Central that we discussed way back in episode 3, all these mountains were created by the impact of Africa with the European microplates. In the Balkans, an added element is the east-west thrusting of some of the neighboring Asian microplates. Due to the impact of Arabia with the Middle East, the plate underlying the region of Anatolia has been shoved to the west as well as to the north, thus putting pressure on the Balkan region. Another source of stress has been a plate underlying the Adriatic Sea, which broke off from northern Africa and managed to shove its way in between the Italian microplate and the Balkan microplate. The research on this is still ongoing and very new, which is really very exciting, but apparently the intrusion of the Adriatic plate has rotated Italy off the Balkan Peninsula. I will talk about this more in the episode on Italy, but suffice it to say for now that the poor Balkan Peninsula was kind of getting it from every side. Side thrusting from Asia, compression from Africa, and then the Adriatic plate pushing in from the west. Not all of this happened simultaneously, but the result was a wedge-shaped landmass and some oddly curving mountains. This brings us back to the Carpathians, probably the king of the curvy mountain chains. I say this because, if you follow the highest peaks, the Carpathians basically form a spiral. 
If you start at the Danube, near the city of Bratislava in the north, the Carpathians go first northeast, then east, then southeast, then south, where they meet back up with the Danube at its mouth. But then the Carpathians just keep going, running southwest for a short way before sharply turning north, enclosing a small plateau called Transylvania. At the southernmost point of the Carpathians, right before they make that sharp turn to the north, a tumble of hills and mountains straggles away from the Carpathian chain and joins it to a chain of mountains that is aptly named the Balkan Mountains. These mountains, as opposed to the highly eccentric Carpathians, are nearly straight, running more or less due west. If you connect the Carpathians and the Balkan Mountains, you would get a shape something like a backwards capital S, stretching from the city of Bratislava in the north to a point only 60 or 70 miles from the modern city of Istanbul in the south. On the west side of the peninsula, there are two major mountain chains, the Dinaric in the north and the Pindus in the south, but really they form one long mountainous wall along the Adriatic coast of the peninsula, from the Alps in the north down to the tip of the Peloponnese in the south in Greece. So that's a lot of mountain chains for such a small area, but what are the areas between the peaks like? To answer that, I need to roughly divide the peninsula into the northern Balkans and the southern Balkans. The northern Balkans are defined by that big backwards capital S I mentioned, with the areas inside the curves of the S being for the most part flat, temperate, well-watered plains. These areas are good for agriculture or the grazing of herds. The northern loop of the S is by far the largest, and is called the Carpathian Plain, and today includes portions of Austria, Romania, Serbia, and Croatia, but the vast majority of the plain belongs to Hungary. You'll sometimes hear people refer to it as the Hungarian Plain, since the country makes up the majority of the plain. But I'm going to try for the more neutral, less anachronistic Carpathian Plain, since we're going to be talking about an era before the foundation of the modern state of Hungary. The southern loop of the S encloses a smaller plain called the Danubian Plain, and is split between Bulgaria and Romania today. It is basically a smaller twin of the Carpathian Plain. Though only the southern one is named for the Danube, the river is the final defining element of the northern Balkan region. In the Balkans, the mountains may give form, and the plains may define how people are able to raise food. But rivers define the flow of trade and ideas, and in the Balkans, the Danube is THE river. The rest are just streams by comparison. If any of you listening are some sort of water deity with some sort of emotional attachment to another river, don't feel bad. The Danube makes almost all the rivers we've spoken about in this podcast series look like damp spots on the pavement. Only the Volga is really in the same league, and between us, the Volga got lucky. How big is the Danube? Well, for starters, modern freight ships can navigate it all the way into southern Germany. I will grant you that these are specially designed riverine vessels, and they get a lot of help from modern engineering at a few points. But that's around a thousand miles as the crow flies, and much farther by river. The Danube is so important to trade that it's considered an international waterway, just like the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. This is because it serves as a trade route for eight modern countries, and with its tributaries it serves nine more, a huge portion of Europe. On average, the Danube discharges over 200,000 cubic feet of water per day, more than twice the Rhine's rate and only a little bit less than the Volga's. Like the Rhine, the Danube has a large delta, 40% of which was created in the last thousand years, showing us again the impact of human agricultural development and runoff on the environment. If you're still not convinced of the sheer natural power of the Danube, consider this. The Danube flows through the Carpathians twice. Twice. That's absurd. 
The first is in the area between the cities of Vienna and Bratislava, where a narrow, bowl-shaped valley was created partially by the river itself and partially by the pulling apart of two plates. I've not been able to confirm this definitively, but I suspect that this separation was related to the rotation of Italy that we just discussed. But I haven't confirmed it, so don't quote me on that. The second time the Danube cuts through the Carpathians is the impressively named Iron Gates, which both sound and look like something from Tolkien. The Iron Gates are a place where the Danube simply carved its way through the mountains, creating a winding canyon 40 miles long, through which, if one is so inclined, one can sail their riverine freighter vessel. The Danube was able to make these passes for a few reasons. A big issue is that it is one of the older rivers in Europe, and in fact was historically even bigger. Before the last ice age, the valleys that feed the upper Rhine didn't exist, so the tributaries that currently feed the upper Rhine flowed through the Danube. As a result, much of the Danube Valley could accommodate a substantially larger river than it currently does. This mega-Danube seems also to have predated most of the mountains in the region. So as the mountains were gradually raised by earthquakes over several centuries, the Danube would continually re-erode its path. So sure, the Volga is bigger, but everything in Eastern Europe is flat. The Danube punched its way through the bones of the earth itself. Before we move on, there's one final region of the Northern Balkans that does not interact with the Danube directly, and that's the Transylvanian Plateau. You'll remember that I said that the Transylvanian Plateau is formed by the spiraling end of the Carpathian Mountains. This area, inside and outside of the spiral, is rough country, but the area inside forms a network of large, relatively temperate valleys well watered by the surrounding hills. Despite the sinister reputation of Transylvania, it remains an important agricultural area to this day, and forms the geographic heartland of modern Romania. Of worthy mention here is the Olt River, which cuts through one of the thickest belts of the Carpathian Mountains to meet up with the Danube in the Danubian Plain, thus forming one of the only really usable passes through the southern mountains and into Transylvania. The Moors and Solms River flow out of Transylvania through broad valleys to the west and northwest respectively. Thus, Transylvania is somewhat easier to access from the west than from the south, though all around it's a rough patch of country. So I think we've done a pretty good job with the northern half of the Balkans. The Carpathians and the Balkan ranges form a big backwards S with broad, fertile plains in between. The Danube connects these two areas by punching through the Carpathians twice, although Transylvania, which is right in the middle, is a bit cut off from everything by mountains. The southern half of the Balkan Peninsula is a very different creature from the north. Once you get more than 30 miles from the southern or western shore of the Danube, the rough country sets in and the breaks are few and far between. Unlike the Carpathians, which form relatively discrete chains despite the weird spiral, the Dinaric and Pindu chains are just a huge smudge of mountains, cut up with river valleys that allow ac access inland not by boat, but by eroding land into walkable valleys. These valleys form disjointed networks of accessible areas that are physically isolated from each other, and thus less valuable for the same reason that a cul-de-sac is less valuable from a commercial perspective than a piece of land right next to a highway. Where these mountains meet the seas, the landscape becomes a labyrinth of rough, arid mountain valleys that gradually drown, forming a riot of peninsulas and bays, gradually breaking up into large islands and eventually archipelagos. This is true on both the Adriatic and Aegean coasts, but in the Aegean, the islands spread all the way across to the Asian shore. There's something like 175 major islands in the Aegean, and I arrived at that number by counting out from lists in Wikipedia, so that doesn't include all the little islets and such that may still be large enough to be inhabited. This landform has a number of important effects for the inhabitants. 
the mountains in the southern half of the peninsula are generally not tall enough to form permanent snow caps, which is hugely important. Although all mountains will catch moisture and cause it to rain, mountains without a snow cap will generally just shed this rain. Snow acts as a freshwater reserve that can gradually be let out and replenished over the course of the year, which is just one of the reasons that modern climate scientists are going so bonkers over the melting of the nonpolar glaciers. This effect is added to by the soil, which is generally sandy and interspersed with large sandstone formations. This type of soil is referred to as well-drained on seed packets, which is great when the land is flat, but can be an absolute disaster if it is not. Since the water drains through the soil rather than getting trapped, it will prevent molding on plant roots, which is really good. But if all the water drains away, then there is no water, and the plants die. As a result, the flat land in the southern Balkans tends to be exceptionally good for the types of crops humans love. Cereals, beans, and fruits. But there is not much of the flat land, so people have had to find ways of getting food that did not rely exclusively on cereal production, although certainly planted agriculture remains important for everyone in the region. And it should be noted that there are some crops like grapes and olives that are native to the Mediterranean region that do really, really well on sandy hillsides given a regular amount of rain, but given a good amount of drying in between. That said, grapes and olives are never going to be a staple product that a person can live on exclusively. I know I've tried with olives. I really like olives. For those near the coast, the sea has offered opportunity since the dawn of recorded history. Beyond fishing, the particular landform taken by the Aegean and the Adriatic was perfect for early trading. The small road vessels of the ancient world generally were able to go 40 to 50 miles in a day, at which point they needed to pull up on a sandy shoreline and find water. The Adriatic and the Aegean are full of little islands and sheltered bays surrounded by sandy beaches, created by the erosion of sandy soils. The availability of these pullouts made trading beyond a day's journey a feasible activity for the early Greeks, and was the early basis of the Mediterranean trade network that began early and persists to modern times. Even during the Middle Ages, when technology had advanced and stretched the range of trading vessels, the people of the Mediterranean still relied on road vessels, and preferred to make port at night. During good times, this trade allowed residents not only to fish for food, but to trade over long distances with enough profitability that they could import food. Of course, the Middle Ages were, for the most part, not good times, and many people lived more than a few miles from the coast. So for those who had to make a living without access to the sea, what options were available other than starvation? One could learn a trade, steal, become a mercenary, or most commonly engage in pastoralism. This was a different kind of pastoralism than that of the steppe nomads, which we've seen over the last couple episodes, but the basics are there. Livestock would be raised on plant species inedible to humans, but which grow in abundance on the mountain sides of the peninsula. The herds would be moved between pastures seasonally or yearly to prevent overgrazing. Humans would protect the herds, and in turn would live on the things that they produced, some of which would have been meat or wool, but the majority of which would have been dairy products. Those not directly involved in the grazing of animals would have raised such crops as they could to supplement their diet. Unlike the steppe nomads, the people of the Balkans were not mobile, and the pastures were not large grasslands, but such plants as would grow in tiny fields and halfway up the side of a mountain. Humans can't get much from such things, but few grazing animals would be able to deal with such an environment either. Cows really aren't good at mountains. Which is why the cash crop of the Balkans was the goat. Sheep were common as well, 
but this to me is a fine distinction, since sheep are related to goats. Both animals produce milk and wool, and would be able to handle the rough terrain, with sheep being larger and more valuable, but with goats being hardier, and thus better able to handle the terrain, and more common. Chickens would also have been common for their eggs, and pigs were an important source of either meat for the wealthy, or cash for those who sold their meat to the wealthy. But the value of the dairy products produced by goats for the poor of the Balkans simply cannot be overstated. The vast majority of the milk was turned into yogurt, a product that is high in protein and sugar, but low in lactose as a result of the fermentation process. Today, yogurt is often called the rice of the Balkans, since people in the Balkans consume yogurt in the same way people from Asia consume rice, as an assumed and prized part of every meal. It also follows that both products allowed much higher population densities than would otherwise be allowed by their environments. Since yogurt appears in written records since before the Greeks do, and since we know that yogurt was in the Balkans by the time of Pliny the Elder, we can assume very safely that yogurt had already become a staple by 1300. Apart from the raising of livestock and the working of industries related to agriculture, the other major source of inland subsistence was overland trade. Of course, this was dangerous in the Middle Ages, and less efficient than sea shipping, but as in other places we know it happened, and in fact the records for the Balkans are some of the best in Europe. Given that I just spent the last few minutes talking about how the inland areas of the southern Balkans was a disjointed series of valleys that lead nowhere, one might wonder how any overland trade was engaged in at all. This is true in general, but there are a few ex exceptions, and these valleys became corridors of trade, and thus extremely valuable. The most important place in the Balkans for trade, overland or otherwise, was Constantinople. And to understand what I mean, let's take a look at the sighting of Constantinople. Constantinople commands the sea routes passing between the Aegean and the Black Sea, as well as the land routes between Anatolia and the Balkans. At its height, Byzantium also had a powerful fleet in both the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, and the bases to give these fleets real teeth, so the city could effectively control all the east-west trade from the Crimean Peninsula to Malta. Only the steppes presented a real alternative routing, and even then, as we've seen over the last couple episodes, it seems that a lot of the most valuable trade still came through areas under Byzantine control. This location would have meant nothing if life were not somewhat sustainable in Constantinople itself. If you think about it, there are four areas around the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles where a city could have been founded to control this trade. One on the Asian side of the Bosphorus, one on the European side of the Bosphorus, and the same on the Dardanelles. Why was it the European side of the Bosphorus that ended up with one of the most famous cities in the world? Partly, and most famously, it was the military defensibility of the site. Indeed, the Asian side of the Dardanelles was once the site of the city of Troy, a famous city in its own right that did profit extensively from trade throughout history, but which was destroyed again and again and again due to an exposed military position. But why not the European side of the Dardanelles, or the Asian side of the Bosphorus? In short, they're too rough. Agriculture can and does happen there, but it's rugged terrain and not super productive. By contrast, the area around Constantinople, while hilly, is relatively flat and arable, meaning that local food was available for the citizens of the city, even if it wasn't necessarily enough to feed the entire population all the time. Further afield, the Bosphorus is at the end of a long, wide valley, formed by the Maritza River. This river forms a usable pass that goes up into the Balkan Mountains. At the head of this pass is a small plateau containing the modern city of Sofia, 
from which one can pass over the Balkan Mountains and down to the Danube via the Opletnia River Valley. Thus, landward trade from the city could pass into the interior despite the mountainous terrain, but this was not necessarily the most popular route for European-bound goods. Much of this trade would go directly to and up the Danube by boat, of course, uh, as we discussed very briefly in the episode on the Rus. But much of it would also be sailed west to the city of Thessalonica, the second city of the empire after the loss of the east to the forces of Islam. Located on a small but fertile plain, Thessalonica became quite important in the early Middle Ages, and in fact its wealth has often made it the second city of whatever political entity it was a part of. But its value in trade has never really translated into political centrality. It's always been a bridesmaid and never a bride in that respect. Instead, it's been fought over almost unceasingly. This holds true right down to modern times. These days, Thessalonica is the second city of Greece, and according to many observers, the ongoing conflict in Macedonia may have as much to do with concerns over the security of Thessalonica as it does with self-determination among the populations of Macedonia. But let's get back to the importance of the sighting of Thessalonica for its place in the trade network. Thessalonica is located at the base of the, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Chalcidice Peninsula, the body of land that gave the emperors of Persia so much trouble during their invasions of Greece during the ancient world. Mariners would often rest in the harbors of Thessalonica before attempting to circumnavigate this dangerous peninsula, thus giving any city at the head of this harbor an important position. The mountainous peninsula was also very important to the city in terms of its local ability to sustain itself. It was engineered during the Roman and Byzantine periods to provide water for the city, which was an important point as it meant that the city itself was between land-based adversaries and the city's water supply. The most important feature of Thessalonica in terms of land-based trade was the river Vardar. Again, as this is the Balkans and the Vardar is not the Danube, the importance of the river lay not in its navigability, which is pretty limited, but because its river valley creates a usable pass into the mountains. At the head of this pass is a flat plateau called the Kosovo Plain. The plain not only contains the headwaters of the Vardar, but another river called the Morava that flows north and out to the Danube. This river system of the Vardar and the Morava is what separates the Balkan mountain system from the Pindu and Dinaric mountains, and would by itself probably guarantee Thessalonica a fair amount of economic success. But that wasn't the full extent of the importance of the Kosovo Plain. From the west side of the Kosovo Plain, the White Din River flows, and despite many twists and turns, it carves a relatively usable, if somewhat rough, pass down to the Adriatic, from whence goods could be put on ships at the nearby city of Dubrovnik and shipped either north to Venice, across the Adriatic to Bari, or south out into the Mediterranean. Dubrovnik has a fascinating history, and is currently the place in the world that I most want to visit. The city was an independent republic for much of its history, and gained wealth and power as a transshipment point at a time when sailing all the way around the Peloponnese could be a dangerous venture due to the failure of the Byzantine fleet to eliminate piracy. Ultimately, it came into contact and conflict with Venice, from whom it borrowed many political institutions. Ultimately, Venice conquered Dubrovnik, but it later regained its autonomy due to the gentle persuasions of the kings of Hungary. By 1300, it was an autonomous dependent of the Hungarian crown, with a relatively free republican government and free health care for all citizens. The first pharmacy in the world opened there in 1317, and it actually still exists today, and it's still in business. 
podcast footnote. Many people, if offered a time machine, would want to go see Egypt or Henry VIII. I guess those places are interesting, but what happens if you get sick? Personally, I would take a paycheck, buy all the gold in the local jewelry store, brush up on my Latin, and go live like a king in Dubrovnik in its golden age, sipping Greek wine as I lounge on a glowing Adriatic beach. End podcast footnote. Let's recap the Southern Balkans. The welter of mountains makes travel hard, but the area has massive importance in terms of global trade. The few routes through the mountains at the Maritza and Varda rivers became the sites of massive economic and strategic importance. Inland from the Varda River, the Kosovo Plain contained the headwaters of rivers that created passes to the north, west, and south. Meanwhile, the same mountains that made the Balkans so hard to live on and trade through made the Aegean and the Adriatic cultural and economic superhighways, as they provided innumerable good harbors for trade vessels of limited range. Politically speaking, the Balkans were a world teetering on the edge. The southern Balkans were still dominated by the Byzantine Empire, but it was an empire that was so shrunken from its former glory as to be a mockery of it. We discussed last time how the declaration of the Crusades and the loss of the eastern provinces had undermined the economic importance of Constantinople by opening alternative trade routes to the west. In fact, this process had been aided by the empire itself, which had gradually ceded trade and even military functions to the fleets of the Italian city-states, most notably their allies, the Venetians. When in the Fourth Crusade the Venetians took up the idea of seizing the city as a money-making venture in the guise of a crusade, the city no longer had the naval strength to resist. By 1300, the Greek aristocracy of the empire had managed to take the city back from the so-called crusader states that had been left in the wake of the Fourth Crusade, but the empire was splintered. The core areas of the empire in the western half of Anatolia and the southern half of the Balkans were likewise under Greek control, but apart from the hinterlands of Thessalonica and Constantinople, most of these areas were controlled by the local aristocracy, whose loyalty to the city was limited at best. Most of the Peloponnesian Peninsula in Greece was still under the control of a crusader state that was heavily dependent on Venice for its continued existence. The major Aegean islands of Euboea and Crete were ruled from Venice directly, along with about half the smaller islands. In reality, the political entity that had once been the Roman Empire had been reduced by 1300 to being a confederation of culturally affiliated areas, which would probably have been called duchies had they been located in the west. The irony that it was Greek culture that culturally united this archipelago of Roman empires has not been lost on historians. Venice has come up a few times today, and a few times before that in earlier episodes. The city of love and death would seem to belong more in an episode on Italy, and indeed the city itself will have to wait for its full introduction for the next walking tour episode, but Venice has long held herself aloof from Italy, and even today there is a not inconsiderable amount of political pressure for the city and its hinterland to secede from the country which it had viewed with fear and contempt for the much of the Middle Ages. In our period, it must be noted that the Empire of Venice was to a large extent a Balkan Empire. As I've just mentioned, Venice controlled a large number of the Byzantine possessions of the southern Aegean, as well as, to most extents and purposes, the Peloponnese itself. To that, I should add most of the territories in the Black Sea, fortified trading posts established with local permission in cities as far apart as Constantinople and Tunisia, and a thin strip of territory along the Balkan shore of the Adriatic, also known as the Dalmatian coast. Most of these territories took the form of heavily fortified cities or outposts, with some control of a small local hinterland. 
The conquest had started early in Venetian history, when, in the 9th century, Venice conducted repeated anti-piracy raids in Istria, a peninsula located immediately to the east of the city of Trieste, and at the northern extremity of the Dalmatian coast. The city fathers were never keen on conquest, as it seemed likely to be expensive and distracting, but eventually the city was forced to take over Istria to rid itself of the piracy problem. Unfortunately, the Dalmatian pirates seemed to have simply packed up their boats and moved a few miles down the coast. With the raids continuing, another conquest was made, and then another. As more areas were taken by the city, the advantages of having regularly spaced friendly ports began to dawn on the city fathers, especially when combined with the natural resources that could be extracted from these regions. Eventually, Venice became the premier trader in the Adriatic, specializing in salt, Dalmatian wood, manufactured items like glass, and Serbian slaves. With this newfound trade power, the Venetians were eventually able to leverage political power. Trade creates cultural ties that can turn into further opportunities, such as when Byzantium sought to privatize its trade fleets and military functions to its friends, the Venetians. With the Venetians controlling the sea lanes, the empire felt fine letting them assume control of the Black Sea ports as well. In Byzantium and in other places, the Venetians would similarly turn initial, mutually profitable trade contacts into friendly political relationships, lucrative trade deals, and ultimately some amount of local control of port facilities. By 1300, this mixture of opportunism, trading expertise, and civic-minded effort had seen Venice take territories covering much of the Balkan coastline and indeed sprawling over much of the eastern Mediterranean. Let's now leave the southern Balkans and pass to the north where a series of, for want of a better term, barbarian empires, had exploded into existence in rapid succession following the disastrous Battle of Adrianople in 378. Listeners to the histories of Rome and Byzantium know this story, but I need to give the zip-file version at least of the story, so bear with me. That battle saw an overconfident Roman army attack a camp of Ostrogoths while their cavalry force was out foraging. Fighting from behind a wagon logger, the Ostrogothic infantry and camp followers held on long enough for the cavalry to return, take the Romans by surprise, and entirely destroy a Roman army within spitting distance of Constantinople, and kill an emperor to boot. Most historians credit this as the start of the crisis of the 3rd century, which led to the final collapse of the Western Empire. It also began the second phase of the Great Migration Period, as the collapse of Roman political control opened up Western Europe to the, an influx of numerous tribes. After the Ostrogoths and Visigoths moved west, the Huns moved into the area, though their empire's longevity was curtailed by the death of Attila. Many smaller tribes are also attested as moving through this area, such as the Gepids and the Lombards. Groups of these Germanic or Hunnic settlers would have been settling in amongst the Greek, Illyrian, and Thracian natives of the area, though their, the scale of their settlement is hard to tell nowadays. Along with these larger groups, some historians think small groups of Slavs may have started arriving, but by the 580s it is likely that this trickle started turning into a flood, aided by the arrival of the non-Slavic Avars in the 550s. The Avar contribution was to act something like a second Attila, but with more staying power. Their raids weakened the ability of the eastern rump of the Roman Empire to prevent the infiltration of independent Slavic tribes moving across the Danube frontiers, while simultaneously helping to ferment an early Slavic identity by moving some of the Slavs into the Khanate's heartlands to act as useful infantry forces. Many popular histories minimize the, quote, brief contributions of the Avars, noting that they went into terminal decline by 720. Setting aside that 170 years of regional dominance is hardly brief in the context of a human lifespan, 
the Avar polity hung on for some time after that and made important contributions to the culture and population of the region. Though as they were illiterate, the scale of these contributions is hard to discern today. As these diverse peoples moved into the peninsula, the terrain meant that a confused mixture of cultural identities began to take place. Due to the defensibility of the terrain, there is a large amount of evidence of cultural holdouts maintaining their identity within the larger political framework of conquest. For example, Latin was the native language in Dubrovnik during its entire tenure as an independent entity. Indeed, this was hardly the only or even the most surprising of the Latinate cultural holdouts. Far to the north, in the areas around Transylvania, a large community of Latin speakers seems to have survived. This is particularly surprising because the Romans ended their occupation of this area, which was across the Danube, at the beginning of the crisis of the 3rd century, 100 years before the final fall of the empire. The hows and whys of this situation are poorly documented, complex, and extremely controversial, but we do know that somehow a large cultural group of Latin speakers survived outside the boundaries of the empire and emerged as a significant cultural block by 1300. I'll return to the Romanians later, but for now suffice it to say that they are a fine example of how cultural identity survived in the Balkans despite political collapse. In many places, the invaders were able to conquer small areas outright and settle. In others, they simply moved into an area as settlers and were able to culturally outcompete their neighbors. However it happened, the whole of the peninsula saw mass cultural change, with much of it being Slavicized, but wide cultural diversity remains a key feature of the Balkans right down to modern times. The next group to move into the peninsula was the Bulgars, a steppe people related to the Volga Bulgars that we met over the course of the last two episodes. They arrived in 680 and were initially vassals of the Avars. The Byzantines initially supported the Bulgars as a counterweight to the Avars, only to see the first Bulgar Empire wrest regional dominance away from the Avars and briefly gain control of most of the Balkan Peninsula. The Bulgar Empire lasted until 921, and its great contribution was to seek to assimilate their Slavic and post-Roman populations, which would give the Bulgars more staying power than most. This was generally not the approach of the Eastern Roman Empire, by the way, which continued to fight back against all comers, and assert pressure whenever they were able, seeking to maintain the Danube River frontier. Naval power helped greatly with this effort, as the Slavic infiltration meant that the empire was rarely able to hold the interior with any certainty, but could reinforce and supply garrisons at major trading ports all along the periphery of the peninsula and up the Danube River. Ultimately, though, the First Bulgar Empire would fall due to a lack of political sophistication and Byzantine intrigue. Agents of the Eastern Empire first encouraged a coup of the Bulgar Khanate, led by the king of the Kievan Rus, and then rode in while the situation was still unstable and conquered the area outright in the Battle of Arcadiopolis in 921. With the breakup of Bulgaria, Serbia rose to prominence, conquering much of the Western Balkans before stagnation set in, and a resurgent Eastern Empire pushed them north. As Byzantium entered its terminal decline, however, the Bulgarians threw off the Byzantine control and asserted its independence, briefly conquering Serbia before settling into a stalemate with a re-energized Serbia and a much-reduced Byzantine Empire by 1300. These were the big-picture events that occupied the central area of the Balkans during the early Middle Ages, mostly focused on the Danubian Plain and the Kosovo Plateau. Up in the Carpathian Plain, the story had taken a somewhat different twist. Back in the year 567, the plain was also occupied by the Avars, and ultimately became the center of their Khanate. 
Little is really known about the Avars, except that they raided out from their mountain-girdled empire to places all across Europe for about 200 years. Ultimately, in the 7th century, they found themselves on the defensive, surrounded by increasingly well-organized enemies. With the Byzantines to the south, the Bulgarians to the east, the Moravians to the north, and a vassal tribe of the Franks known as the Bavarii to the west, the Avar state could no longer fuel its war machine. More alarmingly for a nomadic people, they were hemmed in by mountains. Though the Carpathian plain itself was suited to their lifestyle, the mountains prevented them from escaping their enemies onto the wide steps of their forefathers. Hemmed in and economically outmatched, their empire was slowly ground down to a rump of its former self by the year 800. It was at this time that the Bavarii pushed out of the plains of Central Europe and into the mountains of the Carpathians and the Alps. Under Charlemagne, the Bavarii were reformed into the Duchy of Bavaria, and their eastern frontier was reorganized as the Avar Marches, which were gradually expanded eastward until they centered on a certain bull-shaped valley that divided the Carpathians from the Alps. More on the Avar Marches in a few minutes. While the Franks, Moravians, and Bulgars were busily humbling the Avars, a steppe people far to the east called the Magyars entered the records as a vassal of the Khazars. Their Magyars began to come under pressure from the Pechings, and ultimately decided to leave the Pechings behind and move to greener pastures to the west, traveling along the north shore of the Black Sea, passing south of the Carpathians into the Danubian plain, and allying themselves with the Bulgarians. Some time later, an allied group of these Magyar horsemen, calling themselves the Onagurs, began to move into Transylvania. Later still, the Onagurs attacked the remaining Avars in the plains beyond the passes of Transylvania, and finally put an end to their political independence. By 895, these people had secured the entirety of the area, and thus gave their name to the Onagurian, or as we say it today, the Hungarian, plain. These Magyar horsemen happened to arrive at an opportune moment just as the empire of the Franks was riven by internal dynastic struggles as a result of the death of Charlemagne. Also, just as it was being assailed all along its northern border by our friends the Vikings, and also, just as the Byzantines were coping poorly with the challenge of the Bulgarian Empire. Sensing an opportunity, the Magyars began raiding, and ended up achieving military success that bordered on impunity. As one might expect, Magyar raids terrorized populations in neighboring territories of Germany, Italy, and the Balkans, but, as one might not expect, they also crisscrossed France. They even raided into Spain on several occasions. The raids are recorded with fear by Muslim chroniclers in Cordoba. Let's pause for a moment to think about the scale of these raids. This was raiding all across Europe, raiding on a scale not seen since the fall of the Roman Empire, 400 years before. It was viewed as as much of an apocalypse by observers at the time as the Viking raids in the north, and by both raiders, religious institutions, trade routes, and farmlands were falling easily to attack. The two threats undoubtedly fed off each other, furthering the political instability of the time, as the political structures of the time failed again and again to marshal the forces necessary to either protect the locals from or punish the raiders for their actions. But oddly enough, it wasn't the raiders that proved victorious in the long run. After about a century, the raids were brought to a close by two battles. The first, in 921, was the Battle of Arcadiopolis, which we already mentioned in the context of the fall of the First Bulgarian Empire. When the Byzantines crushed the Magyar's Bulgarian allies, a large number of Magyar horsemen were caught up in the slaughter. This battle, 
combined with the increasing energy of the Byzantine Empire, brought the borders of the Byzantines right up to the Carpathian Plain, and effectively closed off the south to Magyar raids. Still, this turn of events didn't necessarily affect the Hungarian Magyars directly, until 955, when Otto I, in control of a newly consolidated Roman Empire, finally brought a Magyar raiding party to bear as they attempted to besiege a fortified town. The Magyar army was crushed, and the Magyar prince and his high command were all hung before the gates of the city. Seeking to prevent further incursions, Otto reorganized the Avar marches, which had been decimated by the Magyar raids. In 975, he put the marches in the hands of the Badenburg family, whose patriarch, Leopold I, was named a duke. Duke Leopold's grandson, Duke Leopold III, would eventually move the family's home to a city in the center of that bull-like pass, where they rebuilt and improved old Roman fortifications around the Celtic town of, of Windebona, known as Vienna today. So long as the Dukes of Badenburg held the passes to the Carpathian Plain, no further raids could trouble the German heartlands. This was the end of an era, though of course no one could have known that at the time. The increasingly consolidated power of the West, and the downright scary resurgence of the Byzantines, not only meant that the Magyar horsemen could no longer reign with impunity, it signaled the consolidation of the feudal power structure in Central and Western Europe. It is conventional for Anglophone historians to refer to 1066 as the end of the early Middle Ages and the start of the High Middle Ages, but to me it's Lechfield in 955 that signaled the real shift, the end of a period that began with the Battle of Adrianople and the crumbling of Rome's northeastern frontier. The Age of Migrations was over, and despite the political chaos and starvation and disease, and despite being battered by the Vikings and the Magyars, and the Avars and the Huns, their new social order had survived and begun to go on the offensive. All of which left the Magyars in a bit of a bind. The Czech at Lechfield, combined with the defeat at Arcadiopolis, did not end the Magyar Confederacy, but it did force them to reassess where they were and how they related to the world. Just like the Rus and the Khanates of the steppes, their political system had been fueled by martial victory, and it was the loot from victory that bound together the Bulgars, the Magyars, the Avars, the Slavs, and the Romanians, and a myriad of other peoples, into an army, but not a nation. In the wake of Arcadiopolis, their allies, the Bulgarian Khanate, had been subjected by the Byzantines, and now the Hungarians found themselves surrounded by enemies, and hemmed onto their plain by mountains. No one likes being on the losing side of history, and there was still a substantial number of Avars around to remind the Hungarians what happened to horsemen who got stuck on the Carpathian Plain with no escape. The response of Hungarian society was one of those singular moments in human history when a people completely overhauls their way of life when faced with a challenge. A rapid series of reforms were begun at every level of society to deal with the ramifications of this new situation. On the small scale, the peasants began to incorporate techniques and technologies from their neighbors into their everyday lives. Though still a proud horse culture, the small Hungarian plain could not keep an expanding population fed if they relied purely on pastoralism. So the peasants began to rely on a migratory agricultural method similar to the slash-and-burn agriculture we saw in the forests of the north two episodes back. Though there weren't any trees to clear on the Hungarian plain, and thus less of a use of actual fire, the Hungarians did not at this stage practice intensive fertilization. Instead, they would move into an area and plant cereal and animal feed crops and farm intensively until the soil gave out, at which point they would move on and let the soil lie fallow. 
As a result, Hungary had one of the lowest population densities in Europe, but with the wide plain available, this was less of a handicap than it would have been in other regions, and the development represented a substantial jump in the productivity over other previous methods of subsistence. Politically, a period of retrenchment followed as the princes and chiefs of the Magyars sought to reform their political structure. The example of Bulgaria seems to have had a real clarifying impact on the minds of the Magyar nobility, as these reforms really do seem to have gone forward with widespread buy-in. Even as the princes of the realm reshuffled the power structures of their tribes and redefined military service and military equipment, the nobility were building castles and forts. Christian missionaries were invited in by various people, trade picked up, and new ideas spread. It all came to a head under the reigns of Prince Geza and King Stephen. Fearing the increasingly powerful Byzantines, Geza sought closer ties with the Holy Roman Empire. He allowed the foundation of Christian monasteries and preaching at court, and formed an alliance with the Bavarians of southern Germany. His son Stephen sought to continue his father's policies, but was initially not allowed to assume the princeship due to the usurpation of power by a conservative pagan relative. With the support of Bavarian heavy cavalry units bolstering his Magyar supporters, Prince Stephen was able to drive off the usurper, whereupon the prince publicly converted to Christianity and was crowned king by the pope. Despite being placed on the throne by German cavalry and an Italian priest, Stephen was no puppet of the West. His reforms were deep and important, and touched on everything from the law codes to the organization of the new church. Furthermore, in a time when the schism between the Eastern and Western churches was still very, very new, Stephen openly flirted with both, even after his papal coronation. Though he probably favored the Latin rites, and turned over several Eastern monasteries to Latin orders, there was open practice of both traditions throughout the kingdom. Proximity meant that there were pronounced western leanings on the Carpathian Plains and eastern leanings in the areas around Transylvania, but by and large the Hungarian polity was a zone of transition. As a result of his conversion and perceived bilateral friendliness, Stephen is considered a saint today by both Christian traditions. This was a quite amazing bit of turnaround, and took their neighbors a bit by surprise. After only a few years of consolidation, Stephen fought successful campaigns against Poland and Bulgaria in cooperation with the Holy Roman Empire and Byzantium, respectively. This solidified Hungary's place as one of the civilized countries of Europe, and stabilized their borders. Then the Holy Roman Empire invaded Hungary in 1024, apparently expecting an easy victory over the king who had been placed on the throne and converted to Christianity by the forces of a mere duchy of the empire. Instead, they found a newly fortified frontier, and a government willing and able to use scorched-earth tactics to drive away the invaders. Given a sound bop on the nose, the empire concluded a peace favorable to the Hungarians. And so we have it. Despite checks in all directions, the loose assortment of Magyar tribes and their allies had transformed themselves into a stable feudal society in around 50 years. Despite some instability after Stephen's death, his successors would begin the slow, steady expansion in all directions so typical of the Middle Ages. It was substantial enough to make them one of the largest powers in Europe. The Holy Roman Empire, the Cumans, and the Croatians were repeatedly put to flight in conflict with the Hungarians, and Croatia was eventually conquered outright. This brought Hungary into conflict with the Venetians over the Dalmatian coast, a contest that the Hungarians eventually won. Internally, it became difficult to centrally control such wide swaths of culturally diverse territory, 
And so three eastern regions, known as Transylvania, Wallachia, and Moldova, were turned into semi-autonomous principalities, governed locally, but dependent on the Hungarian crown. Transylvania we know, but for future reference we should note that Wallachia was the northern half of the Danubian plain, while Moldova was the area of eastern Europe between the peaks of the Carpathian Mountains and the Dniester River. These areas happened to contain large Latin-speaking populations, and would one day be collectively known as Romania. For now, these areas were loyal possessions of the Hungarian monarchy, and by the 1230s the core areas of that monarchy had been at peace for generations upon generations, and the monarchy was one of the most successful and respected in Europe. So one can forgive the Hungarians for not taking the first stories seriously. The stories told by Christian missionaries, who had been working in the east among the semi-subject Cuman horsemen of the steppes. Outlandish tales of wild terror moving to the west, then the Cumans were smashed in 1237 and fled into Hungary, seeking protection from their supposed allies. But the Hungarians had been fighting the Cumans for several generations before their subjection. Many Hungarians were hostile to the Cumans and suspected their motives. To his credit, the Hungarian king, Bela IV, did take the situation seriously and called out his vassals to meet the threat. Unfortunately, it took some time to gather these forces, and not all of them took the call seriously. So the Mongols had already cleared the unfortified passes of the outer Carpathians by the time the king and his Cuman allies had gathered behind the Sejo River. But no matter, they still had a determined and experienced king, commanding the army of one of the premier powers of Europe, behind a river swollen by meltwater, crossed only by a narrow bridge, and the Hungarian ranks were swelled by the Cumans, who had experience against the Mongols. Except that... These Cumans were then driven off the night before the battle, when an apparently xenophobic riot had broken out and the Cuman king was beheaded, whereupon the Cumans left and set about raiding Hungarian farms. So, oops. Still, the river though, right? Well, it turns out that there was one ford, and yeah, the Mongols found that ford. The battle turned into a slaughter, and Bela IV escaped only narrowly, which is itself kind of amazing. Not many people fought the Mongols, lost, and survived. At first, Bela fled to the Badenburg lands of the Avar Marches, but Duke Frederick the Quarrelsome turned out not to be a great host. Though his lands now stretched across the Alps, down to the top of the Adriatic, the Hungarians had been restricting the Badenburg spread to the southeast for generations. So instead of offering aid and shelter, Frederick threw Bela in a dungeon and refused to let him out until the king agreed to, air quote, return some of the lands. Bela eventually agreed to the deal and fled to one of his castles in northern Hungary, but he was found out by the Mongols, who sent a large force to capture him. He fled west to his holdings in Croatia and on the Dalmatian coast. There he was forced to move from town to town, hidden by supporters and secreted off to the next safe place as the Mongols pursued him. He narrowly escaped Zagreb, whose antiquated city walls fell to the Mongols and whose cathedral was burned. Bela would later thank the citizens for their sacrifice with a special charter and aid in rebuilding new defenses. The further they went into Croatia, the more mountainous and hostile the terrain became, and the more hostile it became to horsemen. The castles here were on top of mountains, and even the villages could not be taken without suffering serious losses from falling rocks that even the most militarily inexperienced shepherd could just drop down off the cliff face. Eventually the Mongols withdrew empty-handed. Now that he had some breathing room, Bela may have stopped to survey the situation. As we discussed last time, 
The eastern borders of Europe were in flames. All the Rus principalities had been destroyed or driven into the hills, with the exception of Novgorod. The Poles had lost several huge battles to the Mongols, as had the Lithuanians. Central Europe was protected by the Carpathians, but south of the mountains the Mongols were raging across Hungarian lands. They could not force the passes in the north into Germany without major effort, nor to the south into Byzantine territory, so they sought to consolidate their gains in the most brutal way possible before they moved on. Though the remnants of the Hungarian army and populace were fighting a desperate guerrilla war, they needed allies. Listeners of Sharon Istaw's History of the Crusades will know that by 1241, the Mongols had also conquered the Seljuk Turks of the Anatolian Peninsula, and in so doing had pacified all the Anatolian fragments of the Byzantine Empire. To be fair, those fragments were more interested in wresting the Golden City back from the Latin usurpers, but the point is that nothing was standing between the Mongols and the total conquest of Anatolia, but the Mongols' own preoccupation which, with the much richer lands of the Levant. So Bela IV could not hope for help from the south nor the north, and the east was gone. His immediate neighbors had thrown him in prison, but whatever hope was left for allies had to come from the west. Bela wrote letter after letter, trying to coordinate his scattered army and attract allies, such as the Pope, but despite minor victories in Croatia and elsewhere, he was cut off from his men, and the West failed to heed his warnings. And then, suddenly and inexplicably, the Mongols withdrew. The Hungarian and Croatian national mythology has sought ever since to play up their role in the withdrawal of the Mongols, with themselves as the defenders of the West. The story has nearly every element of a story out of Tolkien, an implacable and evil enemy, long odds of success, and miraculous salvation. Maybe the Hungarian and Croatian resistance was just so fierce, or their devotion to God so intense, that the Mongols had to withdraw. Maybe hobbits had something to do with it. Today we know that the salvation of Hungary had nothing to do with guerrilla resistance, or hobbits, and everything to do with the political structure of the Mongolian Khanate. When a Mongol Khan died, all his generals, who were also all the men in his family, had to come home to Mongolia and elect his successor. So when Ogdai Khan died in 1241, General Batu had to withdraw from Hungary. This being the real world, Mongol generals generally did not show up to such family gatherings without as much of their army as they could possibly bring along, you know, to prevent civil discord and ensure familial harmony via mutually assured destruction. So Batu systematically stripped his forces in the Carpathian Plain of Men, leaving a skeleton garrison behind to control the territory. As hard as the Hungarians had fought, and as much as the Croatians sacrificed, it was not them that turned back the Mongolians, but the death of a single old man due to old age thousands of miles away. Some call this divine intervention, some dumb luck, some the inevitable result of a poorly developed political system. It had to happen at some point. Whatever the case, as the main Mongol army withdrew, sieges were lifted and the Mongol patrols disappeared. Bela IV and many of his vassals emerged from the castles or mountain passes and re-established communications. With the king and his army reunited, they were able to quickly and totally eliminate the Mongol rear guard. Moreover, they found that many of the civilians and soldiers feared lost had been holed up in the castles built back when Geta had been consolidating the kingdom. The Mongols had besieged them, and taken a few, but most had held out, even the exceptionally old and poorly maintained examples. Fifteen percent of the population had perished at the hands of the Mongols, and the countryside was devastated. Starvation was rampant. 
but the kingdom held due to hard work, castles, and a lot of luck. The conclusion was obvious. We can't make luck, hard work is a given, but castles. We definitely need more castles, like right now. As many as possible, and just all over the place, but particularly the Carpathian passes that we just let the Mongols walk through last time? Why did we do that? Who needs a stupid river when you have mountains? Oh, also, we should be nicer to the Kumans. The Mongols returned in 1284, but they found a situation so different that the second Mongol invasion is barely remembered. While it should be said that the Mongols of the Golden Horde were not the fresh, unconquered force of earlier times, the outcome must have been embarrassing by comparison to 1241. Passes guarded with forts were bypassed and Transylvania was ravaged, but with hostile, unblooded garrisons surrounding them on all sides, the Mongols were vulnerable and their movements circumscribed. They made it as far as Pest, on the Carpathian Plain, but there they were attacked by the kingdom's carefully assembled army and put to flight. The survivors were repeatedly ambushed in the passes by the garrisons that they had left to their rear. That the leaders of the Horde made it out is something of a miracle. By 1300, the Mongols had been driven out of the Balkans, due to the heroic, if very lucky, efforts of the Hungarian kingdom. In this story, dramatic as it is, let's note the importance of European geography. The Carpathians present a huge obstacle to those coming from the east. Those who hit it are either forced north, into the fens of the Primpit Marshes and eventually into Poland, or south, where they have to either force the mountains into Transylvania or deal with the Danubian Delta. The south of the peninsula is a labyrinth of valleys, though only a few have strategic significance, and so the people of these areas spent much of the Middle Ages squabbling over a few key valleys. In the rest of the peninsula, the terrain and comparative unimportance of most valleys meant that small groups of people could maintain themselves whatever the wider political situation. Those who make it onto the Carpathian Plain might think that they have passed the barriers, but really, they have entered an arena. The passes in and out are difficult and often guarded. Those going north have to pass Vienna, to the west are the Alps, to the east the Iron Gates, and the hill country of Transylvania. Within the plain, a nomadic people could subsist, but they would be threatened on all sides. The genius of the Hungarians was not their raw military prowess, substantial as it was, but their ability to rapidly adapt their society to the new conditions imposed by their surroundings and their geography. This was also true in the southern Balkans, where the failure of the Byzantines to maintain their naval supremacy had turned their geography against them, allowing the opportunistic Venetians to gobble up portions of their empire. This geography, be it the tangle of mountains in the south, or the strategic arena in the north, would profoundly impact European history, and does so even today. I hope you've enjoyed our whirlwind tour of the Balkan Peninsula, one of my favorite places to study. In the next walking tour episode, we'll be moving on to Italy in the Middle Ages, a very important and very poorly studied topic. But next time, we're going to take a break from the walking tour to examine the conflict between the Hohenstaufen dynasty and the popes in Rome. I'm really looking forward to it, so tune in. It should be a blast.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 